When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the British Royal Fanatic Podcast. I'm Hayden, your American friend with a passion for British Royal history. Today, we have a wonderful treat in store for all of you. She was at the Jubilee. She's a children's book author. We have, she was, we were going to be live in London, but technology happened and <laughs> that was just unavoidable. But I have with me a wonderful special guest. She is a California-based world traveler, an award-winning artist, a children's book author, a Mayflower descendant, and a loyal fan of the British royal family. She has a new book coming out, Birdie, the Best Stuttering King. Ladies and gentlemen and everybody in between, I am pleased to say I have Susan Webb on the podcast today. Hello, Susan. Hello, Hayden. Thank you for hosting me. I'm so excited to speak everything royal with you. Of course, of course. Now, what's on everybody's mind, of course, me as well. You not only were at the uh, Diamond Jubilee ce ce celebrations, you just recently have come off the Platinum Jubilee celebrations. So well, I know we talked, we touched base a little bit beforehand, but we saved a lot of excitement for, for the actual podcast. What was the Jubilee like? Absolutely incredible. It was truly historic. And as we were talking earlier, I know I'm not going to see another Jubilee. And we're unsure if we're going to see another Jubilee with Charles or William. So truly historic of massive proportions. The crowds were huge mammoth just a, a, a wave of humanity in the area um and the excitement and the weather thank god the mm -hmm. british weather cooperated unlike the diamond jubilee 10 years ago when it was gnashing wind and rain and miserable and cold um the sun was shining on queen elizabeth even the heavens were shining down on her um <laughs> it was it was I can't even explain the feeling. There was so much uh, British pride. There was so much uh, appreciation for the queen. Oh, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. <laughs> uh, people were so courteous and polite and excited to be there. Uh, and so I am truly honored to say I've seen two of her historic jubilees now. And I'm very envious that you that you got to go because I've just watched by the sidelines and enough of the royal commentators I follow on social media did, you know, in real time. But what events did you actually go to? What all did you, besides being in the streets, watching things on Jumbotrons, what all did you actually go to? 
oh no <laughs> I, I wasn't watching on jumbotrons um i was actually at the trooping of the color and and i just listened to your podcast from last week and um and it was an amazing experience i saw the trooping of the color and i also returned on sunday for the pageant the two two and a half hour uh, festival and carnival and both of them culminated with the long walk down the mall to buckingham palace so i was r- right there in the thick of it i was there in the throngs the the sea of humanity hundreds of thousands of people i was at the railing for the trooping of the color i was literally had my stomach pressed up at the railing with uh, with 10 or 12 rows of people pushing behind me i was looking right at the police officers and i saw uh prince charles prince william princess anne go by on their horses i saw duchesses Catherine and Camilla and Louis and George and Charlotte go by in their carriages. Uh, Sir Timothy went by in the carriages. We think maybe Harry and Meghan went by in uh, some blacked out vehicles. We couldn't tell, but I was right there and there was a security incident and I don't know if it was covered in the US press, but I was listening to your podcast last week and you were mentioning oh everything went off without a hitch and maybe that's the way the US media mm-hmm. portrayed it but there was a security incident and we were all concerned in the crowds oh my gosh what happened actually right as the band was starting way down by Buckingham Palace and they were walking up the mall to go to horse guards parades to do mm-hmm. the actual trooping of the color the band was marching along and playing and all of a sudden out of the corner of my eye I saw a kerfuffle down the mall and I leaned across the railing and looked down to my right all these police officers just ran down the mall tackled somebody drugged them off of the mall had that had their knees on him down on the ground handcuffing him what happened is there were a group of protesters in the crowd and they were hidden in the crowd and once the parade started they ran out in front of the parade or the 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 troops the band and they started flashing placards and from what i can understand they were protesting from what the media is saying animal rights or the reclamation of royal lands maybe reclaiming royal lands for animals i don't know but they were flashing placards and they were sitting down in the middle of the mall trying to block the bands and the officers oh my goodness so i was watching all of this unfold and all along the mall there were the uh, grenadier guards the guards in their red uniforms with their bearskin hats they weren't doing in- anything they just stood at attention in their positions and it was the british police who ran and tackled these individuals and were dragging them off the route so the parade couldn't continue and actually the police dragged these people right by me i could have reached out and touched them i have these amazing uh ap photos i mean i could probably send them to the media outlets because they're they're within touching distance and they're dragging wow. these young these uh young pro- 
protesters, they're all young individuals, I'd say in their 20s and 30s, and these protesters weren't even walking. So the police, there were four police per protester, and they were dragging them or carrying them by their all fours down the mile and taking them away, I guess, to be processed or whatever. So the crowd was, um, was, uh, how do I say this? They were shocked. Well, I'd, uh, they, I'd be shocked. They were wondering, oh my word, because we knew that the royals were going to be coming down the mile on horseback or in carriages. You know, they weren't enclosed in any closed bulletproof vehicles. So we were wondering, is this going to stop the procession? Are they telling the queen what's going on right now? Does she mm-hmm. know? Are the royals going to change tact? And are they going to get into bulletproof vehicles? We didn't know what was going to happen with the royals. Um, but the police took these people away. Do you believe the band proceeded basically over these people who were literally either sitting there or the police were trying to, you know, dodge between the musicians and drag them between the feet of the musicians to the side of the mouth. I think one British TV crew showed that, and I don't know if any other TV news channel picked up on it, but um, the band was trained to, you know, be... Mm -hmm. You know, high water, tsunami, hurricane, you know, the show must go on. And, you know, it was amazing to see that nothing stopped. And these British officers, they did an amazing job of removing these people. Then they brought in extra military or extra police with machine guns. So we had um, a police officer with a machine gun standing by us and they were facing the crowd. They were watching the crowd the whole time as the royal family was going by to make sure no protesters or anything else popped out of the crowd. And the crowd was very appreciative of the police. You know, here in America, there is an anti-law enforcement movement, but actually the crowd was cheering the police and they were booing as these protesters were coming by. They were booing the protesters and they were applauding the police. And after the police took the people away and returned to their positions along the route, they were getting massive cheers and applause. They were blushing. They were getting so much appreciation, <laughs> which rightfully so. I oh, yeah. Hate, I would hate to control. I don't know the level of attendance, hundreds of thousands. How do you control hundreds of thousands of people? So they did an amazing job. Yeah, that from what I could see on the on royal twitter and royal news that i follow here in america yeah that i didn't see that and it happened so and it the way you're describing it made it seem like it happened over like you know 10 20 minutes but it sounded like it happened really fast where they saw them diffuse the situation moved on but yeah i didn't hear anything about that that wow and i only I only saw it on one news broadcast and, you know, they had various platforms set up for various news outlets along the route. So these people were up on wooden platforms, bird's eye view of the route. So at least one station caught it. I don't know how these protesters, they were diagonally across the mouth from me and down just a tad and, and there was a little bit of a tree in the way, but I think these protesters came out one by one. I believe there were two at the beginning, the news coverage. I saw that one was sitting down in the route, one was standing up and carrying a placard. And after them, the police just kept dragging people off and off and off the mouth. I think they kept coming out of the crowd as a couple were taken away, more protesters came out. 
and it was just a procession. I think it was about 10 minutes worth of dragging people, tackling them and dragging them off the mall. And they're trying to dodge, you know, oh, mm. here comes, you know, a, a group of soldiers on horseback. We got to get them out of the way. Here comes a band, you know, so mm -hmm. God bless the police. Wow, that I would have. It, that sounds like if you blink, you really would miss most of it. That's not like it happened really, really, really fast. Now, I have a, a fun question. When you were watching the royal pageant, did you see the Golden State Coach with the hologram in it? Yes, I loved that. I don't know uh, anything about technology these days. Phenomenal. That hologram was so impressive. It was so impressive to see the state carriage and it's historic for these type of events that aren't they, you know, these processions with carriages and regalia. It was beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous. I saw I one the videos that I saw of it, it was truly you know, holograms sometimes can have a little bit of like a weird shine on them to where you can clearly tell yes this this looks real but mm -hmm, like we can see there's a little too much of a shine here but that one i think being inside the carriage added that extra where it kind of diffused it to where it looked what i could see it looked as real as it you know back in 1953 when the coronation was happening because that's the footage that, that that they had in there i read somewhere that they you know the golden state coach was making an appearance and you know is is a member of the royal family gonna be into it and one of the top comments went no did you not see their the uh the, the documentary that the queen talked about you know the only thing supporting that is leather and she said it's the most <laughs> uncomfortable thing to write in so i i was like i don't even need to read anything more no there's not going to be a royal in that no lord no, no. I visited uh, the Royal Views 10 years ago during the Diamond Jubilee and uh, viewed the whole uh, exhibit about how they get the carriage in and out of the, the Muse, the stables. And you're absolutely right. Leather is the only thing holding it up and the suspension is terrible. And they say it, it is the most horrendous ride. It makes everybody seasick because of the swinging mm -hmm. motion. And so, uh, you know, monarchs, King George VI was going to his coronation and he was feeling incredibly nauseous, the poor man. <laughs> well, and another thing too is in that same documentary, she went, yeah, it's, you know, that thing weighs, you know, so many tons, it can only go at a walking pace. And I think she said something that we could have made it to, we could have made it to the Abbey quicker if we just walked. <laughs> Oh my goodness. But what other events outside of the Jubilee did you go to? Because I know there are a lot of museum exhibits. There was the tiara exhibit. There's a lot going on outside of the main Jubilee stuff. What all? What else did you do while you were in London? I went to Sandringham. They opened up Sandringham Castle. It's her Christmas home, as you know. Yes. And so the Queen opened up her royal residence for the Jubilee. So it was so touching for me to see Han Sandringham because, you know, I wrote my book about King George VI and that he was born on that estate and he passed away in Sandringham after going out hunting for an evening and he went to bed and God bless him, he just passed away in his sleep. So that was my desire for this trip to see Sandringham. And so that was very impressive. What I was very surprised about Sandringham was that the castle is very long. You can't fit it in your viewfinder. You, it's very hard to get an entire image of the castle in your camera. 
but it's very thin. So if you take two normal rooms in any house in America, if you take a living room and a dining room and you put them together side by side, that's how wide the castle is. It's not like Buckingham really? where you have this big four, you know, forecourt or you have, you know, big wings. It was just one long, long building, two rooms wide. Very surprising. Mm. But the but the estate the estate was gorgeous. I can see why they love to get away. It's about two hours outside of England. Beautiful parks, gorgeous pond in the middle of, in the front of the castle. Uh, lots of woodland. So I was very surprised. We were only allowed to see eight rooms inside the castle. So we saw the main entry, uh, the atrium. We saw the dining room where they have their Christmas. Dinner, lunch, whatever you call it. They told us where they place the Christmas tree and open presents on boxing and have Boxing Day. Uh, they had a little music room with a piano in front of a beautiful window overlooking the lawn. Um, and then they had a hallway with all the rifles. And I guess every monarch has their own rifle for when they go hunting, and they they choose a special brand of rifle and it's engraved and bought, you know, and it's just a beautiful piece of equipment. Um, and then we saw the library where she makes her addresses at Christmas time. Uh, and so that was impressive. And then I went to Sotheby's. I listened to your last, yes. uh, and I saw the Royal Juice jewels. So, and tiaras. So I'm interested in your impression and which ones are your favorite. I, I love, of course, the Spencer Tiara. Who doesn't? It's at this point. I loved when in doing uh, my own personal research, when going back and looking at old photographs, when Diana would wear it, it's sort of, I can understand where people would think when uh, Catherine married into the family, when Megan mar married into the family, like, oh, they're going to wear, you know, Diana's tiara. That's not a part of the royal family. That belongs to her father. That It belongs to the Spencer family and is currently owned by Lord Spencer. So it's wonderful that, you know, Charles Spencer was able to, you know, let them display it, which that's a big get for a free exhibit. Princess Diana's tiara, having that there. I also really love... Uh, the the Devonshire Scroll Tiara that one was there and I have a really funny story about that one I one of my favorite other, uh, members of the British royal family that have since passed is actually Prince uh, is actually Queen Mary I love spending time learning about her she had such a just really interesting life but one of the things that's has been a tradition still to this day I think up until a few years ago is the Mistress of the Robes was always Her Grace the Duchess of Devonshire. And there was one ball in uh, when she was officially queen sometime in during the 10 years when she was actually queen consort. She's at this ball. It's at Devon. It's I think either at Chatsworth House or um, somewhere. But of course, the mistress of the robes is there is there with her. So, you know, the duchess is next to the queen. And, you know, she had on the Queen Alexandra fringe tiara. 
which yeah. is which is tall, but it's not very heavy. The Devonshire tiara weighs, I think, just as much as like either the Imperial State Crown, if not more. It's a huge and heavy tiara. And the queen looked at the duchess and was like, I'm just ready for this to be done. This tiara is making my head hurt. And she looked and was like, your head hurts. <laughs> your head hurts. I'm of, I'm I'm of course painting with big with big paintbrushes here. You know they wouldn't talk to each other like that. But that's where you know she complained about her head hurting, and she's in a lighter tiara when compared. Um, I would have really, I would have really some of liked. These t- you got- I'm sorry, some of these tiaras, absolutely what you were saying, they are huge. They look as big as a crown, and some are just little circlets. You're absolutely right. And I would have, I really wanted to have seen in person the Westminster Halo tiara. I've seen it on uh, one of the duchesses in like the 1930s, one of the few times it was ever worn. And it like encapsulates the whole side of your head. It's like you have on this huge headband and it, again, it looks so <laughs> heavy and just so just our tastes as, as you know, as a culture and as a society have advanced so much to where if you were to go to an event and see someone wearing that, you would just look at them really weird. Like, <laughs> what are you what are you trying to prove here and you know and it just goes to show how now the royal family how they've redefined their taste to still include them but how they've you know paired things back um and i do know actually one of there was an actual royal tiara there that was it's i believe up for auction now it was owned by the it's in the collection of the Duchess of the, the Duke of Gloucester, but it was owned by Princess Marina, Duchess of Kent, and the Duchess of Gloucester changed it. One of the Duchesses of Gloucester changed it, but there was an actual true. This is a part of the royal collection that they were uh, auctioning. Yes, as a matter of fact, I think you mentioned it in your last podcast. Um, are we talking about the fr- the Kent fringe tiara? Yes, and it I was. Love- Mm-hmm. I love that. That is my favorite one. And I was actually at the exhibit a few days after a few friends of mine, a few British friends, and we were comparing notes and you're mentioning which ones you like. I happen to like the Kent fringe tiara. And um, my other pal, Rachel, she loved a tiara that was huge, that had huge turquoise stones in it and I wasn't as impressed with that as you know in the southwest we have a lot of turquoise so it just doesn't seem as impressive to me as the diamond and pearls and emeralds and then my other friend loved uh, Queen Victoria's emerald tiara that was there Mm -hmm. that Prince Albert uh, had made for her which is absolutely stunning and then you were mentioning there was um, Queen Josephine her tiara was on display Mm -hmm. And what I found interesting about the display, you had these gorgeous tiaras. I think the most impressive were the Devonshire. And uh, they didn't do a lot of attribution with the tiaras. They just say from an important family, um, owned by an aristocrat or owned by a noble family. And they wouldn't um, associate names. I don't know if it was for security or whatnot. So I did a lot of Google searching on my own, but these tiaras were so impressive. They were in glass cases and they were on moving uh, mirrored round tables, Lazy Susan. So they were, some of them were swirling and they had lights shining down on them. And it and just glittering the diamonds and the emeralds and the sapphires and the rubies. And there were even two tiaras that were 
uh, guarded at all times and you weren't even allowed to take a picture of them. And so uh, there no attribution. I'm thinking maybe Russian tiaras. Maybe. Uh, yeah, so an amazing exhibit. And you're right, you just walk in. You walk in and look at these amazing jewels. Another, it wasn't included, but one that I think would have been so breathtaking to include would be the Fife Tiara. It was it was a wedding gift to Her Royal Highness Princess Louise, Duchess of Fife, when oh. she when she married in the 1890s. She was a she was if my memory's right, she was a daughter of Edward the Seventh. And her husband was Earl of Fife, but then, you know, upon marriage, he was made Duke of Fife. And this tiara, it's, it is a similar structure to that of the, of Queen Mary's Lover's Knot tiara, where there's things Ah. hanging from it and it's all the different leaves, but it's all very rare, I think, pear cut diamonds. And the front... The front is white gold. The back is their traditional yellow gold. It has... it. One, it looks incredibly heavy, but two, it's just all you see is just diamond. You really don't see any other gold or any other uh, engraving work. It's just that, and it's apparently incredibly delicate. And the last time it was worn was in the early 2000s when the Duke married and his wife, the current Duchess of Fife, wore it. But now it's actually in the Royal... Co- it's in. It's a part of the Royal Collection Trust. And you can go to Kensington Palace and see it. You can see the Fife Fringe Tiara, the Fife Tiara. And that's where Queen Victoria's Emerald Tiara is. That's impressive. Uh, this whole Jubilee has been so eye-opening for me. The Diamond Jubilee... 10 years ago, I was lucky enough to have a private, and by I mean private, there were about 10 people with me, a nighttime tour of Buckingham Palace, and we saw the coronation robes. We saw the tiaras and the gowns worn by the royal party for the coronation. We saw the inside of Buckingham Palace and the various rooms and the throne, and that that was so impressive. And I saw Michelangelo artwork that was on display at the Muse. And I rode in the flotilla on the Thames with the Queen in the Jubilee. So that was historic. And this was a different bent. There weren't as many exhibits this time. Uh, Last time they had a lot of Canaletto and Michelangelo and amazing artwork on display. This time Kensington Palace was opened up and they actually had a photo exhibit, which I found so exciting because it displayed a lot of the Queen's personal portraits of her dad, um, King George VI, again, that wraps into my book. So anytime I found anything about King George VI, because he was only on the throne for 16 years or so, so his reign wasn't that long, but he reigned at a historic time in history. And there were amazing family portraits of the man with Elizabeth and Margaret and Queen Consort Elizabeth and uh, personal shots that the Queen took. And then there were shots of William and Harry and Diana and Margaret, you know, in a bathtub with her tiara. Yep, with a Pultmore tiara on. And uh, then I actually uh, viewed the the rooms inside Kensington Palace and they were very pared down nothing like Buckingham Palace where Buckingham is a living breathing working palace uh this portion of Kensington was you know 
sparse except for a vase here or a, or a chair there but it was amazing just to walk through the rooms and imagine the history that took place in the uh, castle and where Victoria spent her miserable you know oh, early yes. years you know so I used to call it I used to call it the orphanage because the outside of Kensington looks a tad drab a tad dicks what Dickens and Dixinsian, however you say that. It looked a little drab from the outside, but living history and the photos of the queen and her family, that was just very impressive. I can only imagine what it would be like to step inside those historic palaces. It's it, it's on my bucket list. Yay. But and but talking about George the Sixth, you have a kid's book that is uh, that is out that I've had the pleasure of reading and it's this wonderful um, way of making history accessible to kids in a way that is again it's digestible it, it, it there's rhymes in it but yes your your book Birdie the Best Stuttering King and a brief description of, of it it's quote a rhyming children's book about a shy stuttering prince who is thrust unexpectedly on the throne and becomes one of the best kings of the 20th century which i think all, everybody here at the podcast would agree with that with that sentiment given when he was thrust in, thrust into duty and then all of a sudden world war ii happened so my first question when i was Going over your website and looking at all the wonderful material that was on there, you were drawn to George VI through the movie The King's Speech. What about Colin Firth's performance made you go, hey, hold on, I want to know more? What, what about it really enticed you? I think Colin Firth is a glorious actor. He embodies the character wholeheartedly that he is portraying and he portrayed this man that was so humble so honorable uh so engaging uh, he he loved his family he loved his children he loved his wife he loved his country and unfortunately because of his speech impediment it made it very difficult for him to carry out his royal duties. And Colin Firth just brought out such humanity in the portrayal of this man. Your heart just bleeds for him. I'm sure everybody out in your audience, everybody has something that they don't like about themselves, something they'd like to improve or change. And and this poor man, just because of birth, was thrust into this royal family and there are duties expected of him. And it was such a traumatic experience for him to talk in public with a speech impediment. And Colin brought that struggle to life. He brought his internal struggle without saying a word. You could see his throat muscles clenching and his jaw clenching, and you could almost see sweat breaking out on his brow and his nervous glances to his wife for support. Um, you felt the struggle of the man, and that's that's a beautiful uh, portrayal by Colin. I don't think anybody else could have brought the humanity to uh, King George the Sixth, and I never knew the man. The man just passed away. The king just passed away nine years before he was born. I never knew about him. I don't know if you've ever heard about him. So I thought, 
who is this man? This is current history. This isn't like King Henry VIII. So why haven't I heard of this monarch? And because of Colin and his heart-wrenching portrayal, I thought, I need to learn more about this man. And you know, sometimes when an actor portrays an individual, you think, well, when I research the real individual, maybe I won't be as touched or I won't be as enraptured with the person. But when I started researching King George VI, I was enthralled. Um, he is everything and more that Colin portrayed. And I, I'm sitting here in my office and I have massive portraits of him hanging on my office wall as a dedication to him. Um, he's a wonderful man. I think he's very misunderstood. I think he's actually very intelligent, very honorable, but just because he couldn't get his words out, people perceived him as maybe less of a man or a monarch than he really was. And uh, I think standing by his country and standing by his people when his brother, King Edward VIII, abandoned the throne, I cannot applaud the man enough. So I wanted to honor him. And so I hope the book for children brings about his personality, his little temper tantrums when he's being teased by his brother Edward and his frustration at having a stutter. So I tried to bring out a personality with his tenter, temper tantrums and his not knees wearing braces. And that's another thing he struggled with. On top of a speech impediment, he had crooked knees. And so he was wearing braces that were incredibly painful. So the poor man, you think, oh, royals have it easy. Not so. And then they had, as you know, they had nannies. And you think of nannies as having to be very polite and uh, uh, conform to the wishes of the king and queen. But he had a very big nanny who who uh, denied him dinner, which caused him ulcers. He had to have an operation when he was in the Navy for uh for stomach problems uh so he had he had terrible digestive issues terrible painful knock knees and he had a speech impediment and he still ruled admirably and he helps bring his country through world war ii so i hope a new generation of readers will come to appreciate him as much as i do Oh, of course. You really hit the nail on the head there. And one thing too, I, I believe you also hint in this, in, in your book, that same nanny, when they would have a moment like every day, you know, during afternoon tea, okay, bring the kids in, you know, so to see, to see their parents, that same nanny, you know, really loved Edward VIII. He, she really didn't like George. So she would like pitch him or do something to make him upset and cry. And so within the family, he had this connotation of being really sensitive and being really emotional. When if you look at the facts, no, he was, he had a really, really awful, awful nanny. Um, but in, in all the ways that you could choose to tell uh, George the Sixth story. You chose a kid's book, which I, one, really applaud. Uh, it's, you know, adding a different type of story for children to have, but why a kid's book? What made you, what made you decide to write this for, in a kid's book in a Dr. Seuss style, which was, which is really fun by the, by the way, but what oh, made you decide the kid's book? 
Well, again, it goes back to the King's Speech movie and David Seedler, who created the movie, and David Seedler had a stutter. And as we see in the movie, uh, the King worked with Lionel Loeb, an Australian speech therapist, and one of the techniques to help stutters was rhyme and also tongue twisters. So I thought rhyme, uh, that would be a great lead in for a children's book. Number one, when I did research, there were no children's books about King George VI at all. So I found that very, very disconcerting, this wonderful man and nobody knows about him. And then I thought, well, my favorite author is Dr. Seuss and I love his rhymes. I'm wondering if I could write a children's book and do it in rhyme because I love Dr. Seuss, but also rhyme as an homage to Lionel mm -hmm. Logue and his techniques. So it just kind of wrapped in seamlessly. Now writing a book in rhyme and trying to move a storyline forward and keep <laughs> it historically accurate but make it rhyme, that took 11 years. <laughs> oh, I completely believe that. And it's, that's really clever. It's, that's a really way to, you know, sort of inside baseball, where if you, if you know, and I picked up on a little bit of it, because fun, uh, fun fact about me, I actually have a little bit of a stutter. And I actually had to go to speech therapy as a kid. And one of the things that we did was actually, you know, speaking poetry. We had different games we, we, we would play. So I began to pick up on it a little bit in terms of like, oh, okay, I get the rhythm. I get the cadence. I see what she's doing here, which I think is really clever. And just another little nugget that, again, if you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. Um Aww. But in all the research that you've had to do for George the Sixth, because I've, believe me, in my time in grad school, just writing a 20-page research project takes years of research, believe me. In all of the research and information and going to palaces, what were some of bits of information that you learned about him that was surprising, that really took you off guard? I didn't know that he um, became a pilot. I didn't know he was one of the first royals or maybe the first to get his pilot's license. I, in the King's Speech, they show David flying in to one of the uh, royal residences. Um, I didn't know that King George VI did that. I didn't know he was the first monarch to address the United Nations. I didn't know he was the first ruling monarch to visit a United States president. And he visited Roosevelt during World War II when he was, you know, pleading for U.S. intervention in the war because, Lord, the war was dragging on and U.S. was somewhat isolationist, you know, not mm -hmm. our war, not our battle type of thing. And of course, we had just come through World War I. So uh, Roosevelt didn't really know if the U.S. citizens want to get into another European conflict. So uh, I was really amazed at the behind the scenes uh, uh, life of the king, just besides being thrust on the throne just because of birth and just because Edward abandoned it. He really was an impressive man, and uh, I found this fascinating. So I put a little, uh, a little timeline in the back of my book, as well as on my website, denoting some of these wonderful accomplishments by the king. And I really liked the the timeline at the end of the book because it helps put it helps keep things in context where you have your rhyme and you have, you know, it's really tricky to make 
you know, to tell a full story in a rhyme scheme accessible to kids, you can't make it too deep. You can't make it too, you have to sort of hit enough of the bullet points to keep, to then get the kids interested to do their own research. But the, I think that timeline at the end is, is really helpful. And also again, helps place things in context. One of the things, Oh, I'm sorry. I want to take do a shout out to author Katie Trent. Uh, she is a wonderful author herself in her own right, and she suggested that timeline, and and I really appreciate it because, like you said, I think it brings the whole timeline of uh, King George V was on the throne, how it came to Edward VIII, how Edward walked away and abandoned the throne, how it came down to King George VI, and then Elizabeth, and how. It shows how history changes, as we were discussing before we went on the air. You know, Elizabeth was wasn't expected to be on the throne. It was supposed to be Edward, Edward the Eighth, Bertie's older brother, and uh, then it was supposed to be Edward's children. But Edward didn't have children, so all of a sudden it was Bertie, and then Bertie didn't have male children, and. And so it fell down to Elizabeth. So history is just amazing. And you and I were touching on this earlier before we started the podcast about how history unfolds. And um, can you imagine if Edward didn't abdicate and there were uh, references to Edward having communications and meetings with Hitler and then various archives and records came to light of how Edward uh actually had communications with german officials do you believe one of these archives documents actually noted that edward stated that the germans should bomb england so that england would sue for peace sooner in the war can you imagine a british royal telling an enemy to bomb his own country and his own people can you imagine if he had stayed on the throne i can't imagine how history would have changed so some people may vilify wallace simpson for luring edward away but you know maybe the cosmos um maybe she is what england needed to get edward off the throne and have king george the sixth assume it um who knows I I very much agree with you there and I in in my own opinion Wallace became that scapegoat she became that you know we can use this as a way to sort of divert attention from truly what's going on behind the scenes um this sort of touches base into another point that I wanted to at least bring in but uh one of the books that I really appreciate that does highlight the more personal side of George the Sixth is actually The Little Princesses, written by Marion Crawford, where it's uh, it was scandalized in its time by the royal family, and she subsequently got fired after it because it was uh, she again let the light in behind the curtain. And one of the things that is beautiful about it is you really get to understand exactly how much he really loved his family and the family time and playing and you know advocating for this, advocating for that, so that his kids could have a better childhood than what he had. But right around the abdication and right when Edward the Seventh took over in the throne, there's uh, a point in the book where Marion's tone shifts. And she's, you know, uh, you know, they're 
you know, the Duke and the Duchess, they're more distressed. There's more politicians coming over. Winston Churchill's been over here where they're, they're, it, their work is changing. Their faces look more gaunt. And yeah, there was a lot of intervention behind the scenes that George VI knew about. And it really came to light what all was going on, you know, truly what he was doing. And I think Wallace Simpson was just that wonderful, wonderful thing, you know, in the 30s, things were a little still more conservative then, that she could be what they could do to be like, okay, no, you you can't, you know, you can't be king and marry a twice divorcee with two still alive husbands. You know, it was it was what they needed at the time to keep the pain away, because at the if it had gotten out in real time that he was having all you know the Nazi correspondence and correspondence with with the Third Reich, it would have been catastrophic. I agree, and you know, at the time when uh, before I knew all this, and you know, ten, twenty years ago, when I knew a little bit about you know Elizabeth and the family, I thought, oh, that's kind of harsh, you know, sending. Uh, Edward and Wallace off to the Bahamas and then they finally settled in France and that they never came back to Britain and I thought wow when mm. you're abandoned when you're um, discarded from the family you're discarded from the family but now I understand because of the documents that that we've been just discussing that came to light about how deep Edward word was with the enemy um now he uh these this documentation states that he had german spies inside his close inner circle and his uh household and i don't know if he knew that or not but he would make comments and these spies would then report it back to the nazi party and the the high officials um so I understand why Edward and Wallace were kept away from Britain for the rest of their life. They were a security risk. I mean, mm-hmm. Britain after the war was trying to rebuild and it, and their situation was very precarious and there was food rationing and all of that. And my God, their cities and ports and towns were bombed. And I can't imagine what life was like after the war. So now I understand why, you know, it wasn't, petty jealousy or anything like that it was for national security i believe yeah it was keeping everybody safe Mm. and one of the things i if you even to uh everybody listening if you really want a wonderful inside portrayal of what georgia six was like as a father not as a king not as a prince not 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 as a duke as uh birdie dad the little princesses is truly such a treat where he um it was really uh, comical to read where uh queen mary used to pull marion aside and go okay what is the curriculum my son is saying that you need you need to focus on well you know him and i've talked and we think it should be abc one two three and she goes no no you need to add xyz in especially for for elizabeth she needs to know this and needs to know that and she was so critical about what birdie was telling her to do because birdie's like no i want my kids to have fun i want my kids to have wonderful memories to look back on which is why you know they had the horse stables you no know, the, the all the miniature horse stables that they had they had all the different types of playing and they had so many different you know things that they would do but queen mary would come in and go no you need to add this and you need to add that and queen mary was the one who really pushed for more like history and constitutional education for elizabeth 
because Birdie was like, no, I want my kids to have fun because my childhood wasn't the best mom so (laughs) I I totally agree and I know in your last podcast you were talking about the documentary that showed during the jubilee what was that called Elizabeth the unexpected queen Elizabeth the unseen queen unseen queen I watched that while I was over in London during the jubilee and there were amazing clips of I call him Bertie King George the sixth on his hands and knees playing horsey with Charles, uh, Prince Charles and Princess Anne and, uh, and, and pushing the stroller and uh, walking arm in arm with Elizabeth and, and just holding the children and the grandchildren on his lap with the corgis. And it was showing him as a loving grandpa, a loving dad. You're absolutely right. So I highly recommend that documentary. For mm-hmm. me, who is a King George the Sixth fanatic, I was so touched. And you know, him smiling out of windows, and you rarely see that unguarded smile where he's happy and he doesn't have the weight of the crown on his head. And and then it slowly goes through his timeline and it shows him at the airport waving Elizabeth off as she goes on her African tour. Uh, right before he died and you see how his health has just deteriorated and he's gaunt and he's gray and oh boy you know it was sad to see the timeline of such a happy family man but just the pressures of kingdom like I stated in my book um the pressure of being kings during a world conflict uh, and having the the speech impediment, the stress, just mm. it, it, you could see it in his face. So, uh, yeah, truly an admirable man. And Elizabeth couldn't have had a better uh, teacher and mentor. She's done an amazing job. And I, I put that down to uh, King George VI and Queen Consort Elizabeth. Of course, they did, you know, they tried to do their, at least he tried to do uh, their best to set Elizabeth up for success. And uh, even then, you know, she really learned, she, she's learned a lot on her own and sort of learning by, by, the, by the seat of her pants, especially when she was still a young queen. But one thing, you know, to tie, you know, how the king looked the illustration style in your in in your book is really interesting it's what made you decide on this wonderful in-between of using real photos with actual you know full original illustrations or parts of original photos imposed into these original illustrations well in terms of that art style how did we get there well, I worked with an amazing artist in Mexico named Sergio Drummond, and I gave him a direction in the form. You know how there are various different types of artwork. There's manga, there's stick figures, there's um, a whimsical fairy tale type of artwork. And I said, this is a history book, and I want it to be realistic. I want children to be able to recognize the king if they open up another history book or they see pictures online, I want them to be able to recognize the real person. So we we tried to use realistic photos and I gave him full reign to, I said, I want to portray the castles realistically, the environment Bertie was raised in. I want you to put in leg braces. Uh, and so he, tur- he turned this very realistic 
and we uh, kind of created the younger Bertie and Edward kind of from imagination because there weren't a lot of photos of Bertie and Edward. So he started off with very sweet young princes, but then when the princess matured into their adulthood, then he worked from actual photos and he's an amazing artist. He's been featured on NBC News and he really brought their features to life. He portrayed Wallace very accurately, the corgis. He even put a portrait of Queen Victoria in the background. Mm -hmm. So I wanted this history, I wanted this to be a history book, to be very accurate, to be very realistic, but I wanted it to engage children. So he did very bright colors and I wanted the children to be able to pick out the actual individuals you know, as they go through life and see pictures and see history books. So it's kind of, I tried to, and then use rhyme as a, as a stuttering teaching tool. So I tried to try to coalesce all these different features in one book, but still make it enjoyable. Yeah. And I think having the real photos there is again, a wonderful strength because it Again, you're tying everything together. You're having, you know, where the kids can put, you know, all the building blocks together. And again, it's one of the things where if you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. You, you know, there's, it's wonderful. It's very planned out in a wonderful, really cheeky way that I really appreciate. It's a wonderful way, you know, here at the podcast, we really like, I really like uh, to make history accessible, make history entertaining, make history fun. And, you know, learning can still be fun. That's one of the things in the years of pedagogy classes that I would take where, you know, you really want to, you know, there's different styles of teaching, different styles of learning where you have to get, you know, all these different, to have a very successful uh, lesson, you'd have to try to capture all these different styles of learning in one. So that way you don't leave a student out to drift. And one of the things that I like to do, especially here, when I have the chance is try to envelop, you know, laughter and comedy into it, make it light, make it enjoyable, even for very serious subjects and make it digestible. And I think your book really, really does that. It really has this wonderful way of making a true pillar of British history in a very scary time. You know, he was in London at Buckingham Palace when it got bombed. You know, he was, he refused to leave London. He refused to leave his people. And I think you wonderfully captured that in your book. In truly, truly wonderful. And I'll post a link to it on Amazon down below in the show notes. And when I post the ep episode proper on social media, but where can they find the book? They can find it on Amazon. They can find it on Barnes and Noble. There's also thebookpatch.com. Uh, and it's on Apple. There are various streaming services, Biblioteca, and all sorts of e-formats. So I hope your audience will enjoy this book. I'd love to hear feedback because, as you know, during the pandemic, it's been very hard to get in front of mm -hmm. children. Do you believe I've never sat down yet with my book with a child and watched their reaction to see whether they get it, if it's too, uh, if it's 
it's too intense or too above their their um, learning level. So I am hoping by feedback that uh, your royal community will enjoy it and provide <laughs> feedback. They're a wonderful audience. They are. They they truly are, and I love every every single one of them. But now here's here's a here's a, a follow up question. One last little follow up question. Are, are there any children are there any other children's books down the line are we gonna are you gonna revisit it i have some things in mind i i just got this off uh, off the uh launch pad in april and i wanted to get it uh launched by the jubilee and i didn't know if that was going to happen but the uh the the shining cherubs and the angels assisted me in getting this out <laughs> into the world during jubilee year and i just got back from the jubilee with a little bit of allergy so i'm sorry if my voice sounds kind of you know froggy but maybe if your audience and if the general reading public enjoys it i would love to do more of course of course i think especially with this year's holiday season i think um any royal fan or any historian would really use to be a wonderful treat to, in, to get uh, young kids introduced into history because history's fun history is quite wild history's crazy and I just love spending time with it. It is so much fun. But Susan, thank you for being on the show today. I really appreciate you taking taking the time, sharing your book with me, and also sharing it with the, with the audience, talking about the Jubilee. I am incredibly appreciative. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate being on your show. It's phenomenal. And uh, thank you for being so interested. Oh, I, <laughs> that's so sweet. But you can find Susan's book. I'm going to link it down below. I'll also link her website as well. So that way you can see her and see all the wonderful work. She's done so, so much traveling, seeing all different, different palaces that I'm very envious of. But everyone, that was Susan Webb. Thank you. Thank you. And everyone tune in to next next episode whatever it whatever it will be but check out her links down in the description box below and with that everyone stay safe stay healthy and we will see you in the next one